Friends, welcome to This Good Word. Uh, Today is going to be fun. What we're going to do is we're going to tackle three kind of big bucket theological issues that have forced, let's let's be honest, many people to either abandon the faith or kind of roll over and say, well, I just, I'm not going to understand that. Um, I guess I'm just going to have to adopt the, the major view. I don't get it. I don't like it. Uh, but that's what I have to believe. So I guess I'm going to do it. And so this this episode is really primarily uh, for those of you who are really um, interested in God, spirituality, even Christianity. But you have to be honest, there are some things that really don't make sense to you regarding some of the things that um, are, are just kind of the standard bullet point, this is what Christians believe. And so what I'd like to do in this is I would like to give a little bit broader view on three pretty complex issues. One is hell. Yep, we're going to go there. So I want to talk about hell. I want to talk about the view of God that many people read in what is called many times the Old Testament, um, which is the book, you know, Genesis all the way through Malachi, 66 books, all written before the time of Jesus. And um, we're going to talk about how to handle that view and who God is and how we can wrestle with that and understand that. And then the third thing we're going to talk about is uh, this question, is there a new reformation happening in the church? You know, about 500 years ago, Martin Luther tacked 95 theses on the Wittenberg door and started a major um, reformation in the church, and it really needed to be reformed. And this is not really, this is not about Catholicism versus Protestantism. It is mostly about um, in the 1500s and 1600s, uh, Christianity had gotten so uh, powerful and corrupt in almost every way that really thoughtful Christians um, for about two or three centuries uh, spent a lot of time preparing the way for a reformation to happen. And Luther was that certain trumpet that had that certain calling and the certain voice and understanding to sort of propel the church into um, a new way of understanding God, way of understanding each other. And so the question is, are we in the middle of another one of those reformations? It's 500 years later, and what are we going to do with that? So let's dive in. But before we do that, actually, I want to say two quick things. One, thanks to all of you who mentioned um, how much you enjoyed last week's episode, the Little Falls edition, where I talked about these five strategies that I'm using to tend to my soul in this uh, crazy time where we are so tempted to just lose it all together. And um, so thank you for that. That, that was I just I heard from sort of an extra amount of you that um, that was just a grounding um, and, and, and helpful episode. So thanks for that. And then number two, um, just a shout out to, to all the new listeners. I, I put out a blog post a couple, well, about a week and a half ago. An ode to women who are too much. And gang, it went viral. I mean, to date, just you know, about 10 days later, it's been shared 
120,000 times or something like that. And, and it's still going. And I've gotten so much feedback from women who have been told all their lives that they're too much. And this, of course, is my ode uh, to them saying that you are not too much. Be your bad self. So um, if you're listening because you read that uh, that blog post, welcome. This is This Good Word. And uh, typically what I do is I either interview someone or I have a conversation with you. Uh, really all about um, focusing on what, um, how we can really, really plumb what's holy about our humanity, about our everyday life. And um, so today we're talking theology though. So let's dive right in. Let's, let's, let's get into hell. So uh, most of us, um, many of us anyway, if you have grown up um, in most of Christianity, um, especially evangelical Christianity, the one view of hell that you've been taught is that hell is eternal conscious torment. That if you die without asking God to forgive you of your sins through the power of Jesus and his death and resurrection, uh, and if you do not believe that, that Jesus is the only way to God, uh, you're going to die. And when you die, uh, no matter what you do in your life, uh, if you don't ask God for forgiveness through Jesus, you're going to um, spend eternity consciously suffering. So that is uh, what is probably the dominant view. And there certainly are some scriptures that would seem to back that up, um, that there will be um, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that it will go on um, forever and ever. I mean, if you want to find some verses, you certainly can find some verses. And we're not going to spend too much time on on that view, um, because I think it's it's just so. Unfortunately, and I'll I'll play my cards there out front. It it is the dominant view, and I think people don't necessarily people that hold this view don't necessarily want to believe that God is the kind of God that would send anyone to suffer uh, eternally, but. Um, they would argue that it's not actually God that is uh, sending people to hell. It's people that are choosing it, that people that hold this view would say that Romans is clear that every single person that has ever lived through nature or through words, uh, through some supernatural way, are given the chance to repent. And it's their choice that they don't. And so it's really not God making them suffer forever. It's their own choice. Now, I think people that would um, reject that view, reject it on the basis of um, what, what thing could you possibly do on earth that would warrant an eternity of conscious torment? Uh, even some of the worst um, serial killers and Stalin and Hitler and you know, these people might say, sure, uh, you know, maybe a thousand years in hell. I mean, think of that, a thousand years of, of eternal conscious torment. But like that, that's probably enough. If you've, if you lived, let's say you lived 50 years, you know, let's, 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 let's do the math and let's say that, you know, or even like if you were responsible for 6 million people dying, then okay, 6 million years. But, you know, at some point, um, eternity, that doesn't, that is, you, you, you can't reconcile that with a view that God is love. So that would be kind of the main debate or the main, 
the main reason why people would reject that view. But maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, if I reject that view, I have to reject Christianity though, because like that's the view. So what I want to do is I want to talk about three other views of hell. And you can read about these in a book called Four Views on Hell by Danny Burke and others. And um, this is from an evangelical perspective, actually. So it is it is written for people so that they don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That if believing in an eternal conscious torment causes you to just not believe in God at all, there actually are some other views which you can believe in based on some of the things that the Bible says and some of the things that tradition says and some of the things that reason says and some of the things that experience says. So the next view is what's called annihilationism or the terminal punishment view. And um, John Stott, really, he's, he's, has, has passed uh, since, since probably 10 years now or so. But he was a very famous British theologian. This is what this is what he believed that um, that hell is real, and that it is it is um, it is the punishment. But at the end of someone's life, they are they their soul simply ceases to exist, and that's what hell is. Um, that there isn't eternal conscious torment but rather that God in God's mercy says, because you haven't chosen life and forgiveness and redemption and repentance, because you haven't chosen that, the punishment, the hell really is that you will simply cease to exist. That you, and so you can Google this, annihilationism plus John Stott. Um, There are verses that talk about this view. Um, and, uh, so, and I'm not going to talk too much about this one either. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to save my juice for the next two. But, um, if, if that view intrigues you more than eternal conscious torment, I encourage you just look it up, Google it, check it out. Annihilationism. So the third view is universalism. And even as I say that word, some of you are freaking out right now because maybe you think it means pluralism, but Christian universalism says that there is only one way to God. Jesus is that way. But because of verses like Romans 5.18, which says very clearly that God will reconcile all people to himself. And because early church fathers like Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Augustine even in his earlier years, uh, the Cappadocian fathers, which is Basil and Gregory the Great, um, uh, they all believed in this one, that at the end of the day, Jesus somehow really will save all people. Now, this is different from universalism that isn't Christian, which says that all roads lead to God and that it's all the same thing. And uh, that, that is not Christian universalism says that we can trust Romans when Romans says that um, that God is indeed and will reconcile all people to himself. And even John 3, 16, that God's loved the world, that he gave his only son, that um, nobody should perish, but that all should come to believe. And and so um, and I, I sort of butchered that. 
that verse. My my long term memory was uh, a little shot right there. But um, those of you who were involved in Awana as kids are just shaking your heads right now because I butchered that. Um, but but that's Christian universalism. And what I want to say to you is that. Um, though that is a minority view, uh, it is the view that was held by many, many early Christians in the first really thousand years. I mean, this is not a crazy new age view that, that came about because we were just squeamish on hell. It actually came about before the doctrine that says that hell is eternal conscious torment. So, um, and I would say, check that one out. Christian universalism. Uh, check that out. And then the last one is purgatory. And this is, you know, commonly associated with the Catholic church, but there even are some evangelicals that believe in purgatory. And what this is, is that there is a period of time where you, after you die, spend some time being sanctified before you're resurrected to eternal life. Hebrews 12, 4 seems to talk about this. Revelation 21, 27 seems to talk about this. This, this time where there is a like, a like a furnace and everything that isn't good and godly about you when you die is burned off and it takes a little bit of time. But that when it is burned off, then you will spend the rest of eternity with God in heaven. And so, um, boy, you guys, hell is one of these topics that uh, I think take people out. And so I think um, if, if, if hell takes you out, what I want to encourage you to do is maybe even pick up this book, Four Views on Hell, uh, or look up Annihilationism, Christian Universalism, Purgatory, and start doing some studying on your own because what I want to say is this, the, the idea that hell is eternal conscious torment is, is simply not the only view of hell that Christians hold. That's all I want to say. Like you don't have to buy into that in order to be a Christian. Uh, there's actually room to disagree on that one. And I, I honestly, I hope that's good news for some of you. Okay, so um, that's hell. And <laughs> obviously that's the very overview version of it. But I hope I've given you enough um, little hyperlinks here, uh, at least um, so that you can go and do your own studying, your own conversations about it, so that you're not stuck feeling like you have to believe something you can't believe in. So uh, let's, let's move on. What do we do about the punishing, capricious God that we seem to see in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament? And you know, so like there are passages that uh, really, really do where we read, where it seems to, to teach that God is someone that, 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 that God ordered God's people to murder women and children, to even kill babies in the name of God so that their view could um, not their view so so that the the people of God could advance and get bigger and occupy new territory. And so um, oh my, I mean this is a real troubling one. 
Because if, if someone told you today, okay, the moral thing to do right here would be to kill a baby. Um, and I believe God is telling me to tell you that you need to go kill a baby. I mean, there, there's absolutely zero chance, unless you're a sociopath, that you would think that that was from God. You would think, nope, that's not from God. There's no way I'm going to do that. Absolutely not. And yet somehow we're comfortable reading about a God in the Old Testament that murders babies and that orders people to murder babies. And this is just, this is a real troubling thing. And so you have some options here. Number one, you can say, well, um, you know, God, God didn't really say that. And, and um, you know, the Bible, the writers kind of made that up. And um, that was their understanding of God, is that the God was just like all the other gods, and that um, we, um, that wasn't really God, that was just people's projection of who God was. And to be honest, that's intriguing to me. I mean, that seems to make sense to me on one level. On another level, it doesn't, and I'll get to that. But on one level, Yes, we're, we're talking about people that lived 6,000 years ago that had a view of God and people that was 6,000 years ago. And the predominant view of God was that God, the gods were, um, they needed sacrifices, that they were capricious, that they were punishing. And so doesn't it make sense that the God that they write about, that's Yahweh, um, would seem like a lot of the other gods. And that, that does hold some water to me. I mean, I can take that, um, I can take that down the road a little ways where it doesn't make sense to me is that in, in, in other places, we seem to see a God that isn't like all the other gods. Like when we read in, um, Leviticus, um, that, um, violence, is given a huge, huge governor when the people of God are told an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It seems a little ridiculous to us right now, but what it means is that um, back in the day, vengeance, you could take vengeance for whatever you wanted to do. If someone offended you and you killed them, th there, was, there was really no, no court of law to convict you on that. And if you were, if you and your tribe were more powerful than whoever you killed in their tribe, you might get into a, another fight and more people might die, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't spend, you know, 10 years in jail because of that. So when, when God's people were told an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, they were saying that if someone steals your cow, the most you can do is take it back. If someone gouges your eye out, the most you can do is gouge their eye out that the punishment really does have to fit the crime. And that sounds a little ridiculous to us, but it actually really was a really fantastic idea that curbed violence. And so, and there's many, many, many other places where Yahweh seems to look and act very different from the other gods. Yahweh changes Yahweh's mind when people like Moses and Lot and Abraham ask him to. So there, there's, there's just all these different reasons why I just can't totally buy that. So 
I can't deny that what we read in the scriptures is there. I'm not sure why it's there. I'm not sure what it's saying about God, but I, but I can't deny that it's there. And I can't, I can't just write it off to, well, that was the view of God and people in, in, in the scriptures. I think that's part of it. I just don't think that's, that's not a very satisfying, a completely satisfying answer to me. The second thing you can say is, well, you know, by the time you get to Jesus, God changes, you know, God over the course of time gets to know people and God changes. Now, um, that seems true. It, it really does because the God that you see in Jesus is really unlike the God that orders babies to be murdered. At the same time, if you say that, if you say that God changes, then what you put your hope and your faith in is now up for grabs because God could still change. God could decide now that the work done in Jesus is null and void because maybe because people, um, evangelicals in America are <laughs> really ridiculous. And, um, you know, so God's going to punish us by pulling that away. That resurrection, redemption, the cross was a good idea, but it clearly didn't work. So now it, 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 it you know, it doesn't offer uh, redemption, resurrection. And that's a really crazy example. But if you, if you claim that God changes, um, then I, I, I think it actually opens up a whole Pandora's box of problems. So here's honestly where I go with it. I do think that there's a progressive revelation of God in the scriptures. That doesn't mean God changes, but I think as we move the arc of scriptures, A-R-C, the arc of scriptures is bending toward love and justice. And Jesus is the ultimate word of God. When we talk about the word of God, we're not talking about the Bible. We are talking about the thing that God, um, the image that God is best represented by and I believe that that is Jesus. So um, we read this story about Jesus and his disciples, and they go to the Mount of Transfiguration. And then, you know, Moses and Elijah shows up, and it's, it's kind of crazy. And then Peter wants to build three tabernacles for them, and Jesus says, no, it's not really what it's about. Here's what Brian Zond says about the Mount of Transfiguration. And I quote, the transfiguration is where Moses and Elijah find their great successor. The transfiguration is where the Old Testament hands the project of redemption and restoration over to Jesus. The transfiguration is where the old witness or testament yields to the new witness or testament. So essentially, and here, here's also what Brian Zond says, and this is from his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. I had him on the podcast just a few months ago. He says this, and I quote, to say it as plainly as I know how, the Old Testament is not on par with Jesus. The Bible is not a flat text where every passage carries the same weight. That's why Jesus can say things like, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. So um, where I go with this is that in these days, in this revelation, um, 
where we find a view of God that really just, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with that. We can hold the mystery of that and we can even not like that. We can argue with God about that. But the ultimate revelation of God really is found in in Jesus the Christ, who is ultimately self-sacrificing, who is completely loving, who offers a way for redemption and resurrection for every human being, who sides with the marginalized and lifts up women who are oppressed. I mean, this is what God looks like. If there is a doubt as you read the scriptures about what God looks like, and if there's if there's a picture of God that seems to not look like Jesus, then we can say with the authority of the reformers that God looks like Jesus. And that doesn't answer every question. I realize that. But it's a way of framing and reframing the progressive nature of the scriptures. The scriptures are always going somewhere. And so I think that's a really important piece. Now, there's so much more to say about that. But um, if you want to read more about that, I highly recommend you reading Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God by Brian Zond. Another book that's fantastic is by Greg Boyd called Cross Vision. And he has a view about what is happening on the cross and how that uh, reconciles some of the violent views that you see about God in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, that you don't have to choose between this violent God that you see in, this, in the Hebrew scriptures with, with Jesus. It's a fascinating view and it's really, really good. So if you want to take another crack at that, another step um, in understanding that so that you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, really, I would, I would say read Sinners in the Hands of Loving God by Brian Zond or read Cross Vision by Greg Boyd. So good. Okay, friends, lastly, number three. Is there a new reformation happening in the church? So as I said before, um, when Luther tacked the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, what he was primarily protesting was the sale of indulgences that popes and different priests would do. And this is, this is what was happening is that people were essentially making financial donations on their own behalf or on the behalf of people that of their friends who had died. And what these, what the Pope or the priests were saying that if you give this amount of money to the church, then we will guarantee you that your sins will be forgiven or that the person that you care about, that you love, that died last week, that their sins will be forgiven. I mean, that was the amount of corruption that was happening in the church. And so primarily those 95 theses were Luther's way of saying the corruption has to stop. There, there, there needs to be a reform in the church where we, where we realize that God alone has the, has the authority and the ability to forgive sins. The Pope doesn't and priests don't. And in fact, um, according to the scriptures, Luther said that um, every single person, every single Christian is a priest. This is a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers, that we all have a role to play in the kingdom, that it's not just the clergy. It's everybody. And so this beautiful play field opens up where we're all equals underneath God, not the Pope. Um, 
And so, and, and Luther had a pretty healthy view even of the Pope. He wasn't trying to depose the Pope. He was trying to bring reform to a church that had gotten really corrupt. And emperors were um, simply appointing their children, oftentimes their illegitimate children, to be um, the priests or bishops of a certain area, whether they believed in God or not, because that was a very lucrative back then position. Can you believe it? Um, if you were a priest or a bishop, you, you were one of the wealthier people in, in, in society. And so people would buy those positions or wealthy people would just appoint people to be in those positions, even if they didn't believe in God at all. I mean, it's really, really brutal. So, um, and if you want to read a good novel about that time, sort of the medieval time, read Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. It's a beautiful, expansive, big novel about, about the corruption of the church. And, and, and it's all about this one guy who's actually building a cathedral and, um, and the different um, fights that he gets into with, with, with the corrupt priests. So good. So, um, so Luther was the centerpiece, but, but he wasn't actually the, I mean, he was the, he was the, as I said before, the certain trumpet that, that finally brought all the work that had been done for the previous couple hundred years to bear. And it was finally time for a reformation to happen. And, uh, it took a long time. It took more than Luther's lifetime to do it. But one of the major reasons why it spread, and this is what's so fascinating as we think about today, is that the printing press had really just been invented. And Luther had written, and this is fascinating, but Luther had actually written a, a different document called 97 Theses. And it didn't really get much of a response, didn't really go anywhere. So when he wrote the 95 Theses, he kind of thought the same thing was going to happen. He was just going to write down his, his convictions and it wouldn't really go anywhere. But someone else got a hold of it, translated it from Latin to German, and then made a bunch of inexpensive pamphlets or booklets and spread it everywhere. And you guys, that is how the fire of the Reformation got started. Can you stand it? Um, so it was not only that the time had come, it was not only that the certain trumpet named Martin Luther um, had the kind of gravitas to bring it about, it was also that there was a piece of technology that was um, that that enabled the spread of an idea to go really, really quickly. So um, here we are 500 years later, and the, and, and the question is, are we at the dawn of a new reformation? And some people are saying yes. There was a woman that recently died about a year ago named Phyllis Tickle. She wrote a whole lot about how every 500 years, um, starting with, you know, the birth of Christ um, and, and going on every 500 years, there's major change happens. And it's, it's accompanied by a major change in technology. It's accompanied by corruption and religion. And what, what happens is basically some old truths that need to be put to rest are put to rest and a new understanding, a purer understanding of God, the church, Christianity comes about. She calls it, Phyllis Tickle calls it a great rummage sale where some of the old used up things are brought out to the yard and gotten rid of 
so that new room is uh, given for some new ideas. She thinks we're in the middle of, we're at the beginning of this new reformation. I think that there is just a whole lot of reasons why she might be right. Of course, the technological advancement that is changing our world um, is, is the internet. And what's really scary to think about is the internet right now is just in its infancy. You guys, I mean, think about that. It's, you know, was it 20 years old? I mean, it's, it's, it's just getting started that 50 years from now, we'll think about 2017 and how the internet was, and it will literally seem like a uh, Commodore 64. <laughs> Remember those things? 64 kilobyte computer had memory of 64 kilobytes, not even one meg. So um, right now the internet is this major advancing technology where we're and social media, especially we are living in a largely post-Christian environment. We're already seeing that in Europe, big time. America is probably, you know, 30 years behind Europe, but we are absolutely heading toward post-Christian. We're seeing some of the last vestiges of, in fact, you know, I think some of this um, evangelical um, furor, if as it were right now, is largely like picture a rubber band. And before we launch into the future, we have to, we're going to have to go back a little ways in reaction. Like it's like picture pulling the rubber band back um, to say, oh, we got to regain some of the things that we lost. We got to get back to the glory days. And, but really there, there were no glory days. Um, but it's, so it's just sort of this idea that we got to get back to when it was really good. But sort of this last ditch pull backward is really going to propel us forward. And many people are talking about that's sort of where we are. So authors like Michael Frost, he's writing a lot about that. Again, Phyllis Tickle, um, Brian McLaren, many people think that they don't really know what it's going to look like, but that um, the church is undergoing a radical change. And that's a still going to probably going to, I mean, if that's true, it, it, we're, we're just at the beginning of that. So that's going to take 30, 40, 50, 60 years. But we're already kind of seeing the beginnings of it, right? People like Shane Claiborne and, and, and the new monasticism. Um, he's a guy to pay attention to, Shane Claiborne, uh, and some of the work that he's doing in Philadelphia and around the world. Uh, I think, this is just me, who am I? But I would be willing to put some money on the table and say, yes, we are in, in that kind of a change. It feels bigger than just like the chant. Like when I was, you know, early 90s, late 80s um, in, in the church, it was like the seeker movement and churches were changing. Um, gone were, was the idea that we, you know, needed to meet in a church building. Then all these churches were meeting in theaters and they were doing drama and contemporary music. And this was such a big new thing. But really, that that wasn't a meta change. That was just a that was just a course correction. What we're or to, what we're talking about potentially with the new Reformation is a is a huge seismic shift, and um, I think the pattern of Christianity is birth, death, rebirth. So why would we be worried that we might be at the end of one iteration of church? so that another iteration of church can be born. I think it's very possible we are. So my friends, 
Uh, that was just the, the slimmest dive into those three topics. But again, what I hope this has given you, if you are one of these people that's really having a hard time hanging on to faith in Jesus, to Christianity, to God at all, because of some things that you just think you just thought were the only option around hell or around this view of God or around how the church is. My hope that is that today, then this episode, I've given you some hope that there actually is a different way of looking at things. And you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that there are different views on these really hard, sticky issues. I know I haven't you know, settled the issue for you. What I hope you'll do is take some of these thoughts, take them to the people that you love, do some of your own reading, do some of your own research and figure out if you can hang on, hang on to a God that is actually bigger and more expansive than you thought. So that really is my hope, uh, my friends. So uh, we are dust and breath. We're limited and limitless. We're human and holy, and we are in it together. And happy Thanksgiving, my friends. Uh, There's a lot that me and my little tribe are going to be grateful for this year. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Weens Author, Twitter at Steve Weens, and Instagram at Steve Weens. And you can find all my work, all my books, show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash this good word. The truth was you knew you were losing that fight in your suburban